This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of murder and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On the evening of November 8, 1983, Lieutenant Linsky of Bloomington PD received a call from Nadine Palmer. She was worried about her daughter, Susan Hendricks, and her three grandchildren. No one had heard from them in over a day. Susan's husband, David, wouldn't be home from his business trip for a few hours. Linsky dispatched Detective Michael O'Brien and Officer Michael Hibbins to check out the Hendricks family home. It was just after 10.30 p.m. Hibbins pointed out that the screen door that led into the back patio was unlocked. O'Brien agreed that they could probe a little further into the house they stepped into the darkened kitchen. Hibbins turned on his flashlight. They couldn't see much, but the drawers were open and their contents scattered. Maybe a break-in. They turned down a short hallway. More closet doors and drawers were open. It seemed less likely a robbery and more like someone packing to leave in a hurry. At the end of the hall the doors to both bedrooms stood ajar. O'Brien stepped into the master, Hibbins into the kids' room. They found the bodies of 30-year-old Susan, 9-year-old Becky, 7-year-old Grace, and 5-year-old Benji in their beds. They saw blood sprayed across the walls of both rooms. Hibbins accidentally kicked something metal at the foot of Becky's bed. An axe and a butcher knife arranged on the floor, like an offering, or perhaps an apology for the violent murder of an entire family. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a podcast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion 
is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Last week, we covered David and Susan's courtship and marriage in the conservative Plymouth Brethren Church. In 1983, David's life was derailed when his wife and three young children were brutally murdered. This week, we'll watch the police investigate David. We'll follow as they dredge up a history of lies and guilt in his past, hoping to unravel the enigma of this family man and reveal the potential murderer beneath. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. 29-year-old David Hendricks learned of his family's terrible fate around 11 p.m. on November 8, 1983, when he turned the corner onto his street. A neighbor, Karen Kramer, invited him into her house to collect himself. She made him some tea, but it was still untouched on the table at 11.30 p.m. when Detective Charlie Crow sat down across from him in the Kramer living room. He noted that David seemed calm and collected, although he held a thousand-yard stare over Crow's shoulder during the entire interview. It was almost as if he was making sure his family wasn't about to step out of Karen's back hallway and return to the living. Or, thought Crow, perhaps it was because David couldn't bring himself to look the detective in the eye. Interestingly enough, Crow was almost a neighbor to the Hendricks family himself, as he lived right around the corner. He had heard of David, the successful prosthetic salesman and devout Plymouth Brethren congregant, though he had never met him in person. Crow would never admit it, but he held an unconscious bias against this family man. David had either left his family in a dangerous situation, or killed them himself. David told Crow that he had left home around 11 p.m. on November 7th for a business trip across the Midwest. He kissed Susan goodnight in her bedroom. He watched over his kids until they fell asleep and he left around midnight. This wasn't unusual. David was a fastidious man when it came to timing and scheduling and he usually packed his business drives to the brim with appointments. He always left the previous evening in the middle of the night to perfectly time his first morning sale. On this particular trip, he stopped at a gas station in Wisconsin to change into a suit around 4 a.m., not wanting it to get wrinkled in his suitcase. He made his first stop at Wausau Hospital at 8 a.m. on November 8th. 
after his meetings, he checked into a Red Roof Inn in Madison, Wisconsin. At 11.30 a.m., he called home from his hotel room, but no one answered. From 12.30 to 3 o'clock p.m., he called home another 10 times. By 5.30 p.m., he was so worried, he called Susan's sister, Mary Ann. She told him that Susan and the kids never showed up for their scheduled dinner. Detective Crow confirmed with Karen Kramer that David called at 6.30 p.m. and again around 7.10 p.m. By 9 p.m., David called the police. He checked out of his hotel and frantically headed home to check on his family. But he was too late. Crow asked if David owned any weapons, but he just shook his head, utterly perplexed. They didn't own any hunting guns or blades, just kitchen knives. Oh, and that old axe in the garage. As for the idea that this was a robbery, there was nothing valuable in the house, even though David was a very wealthy man from his prosthetics business. They lived a simple life in accordance with their Plymouth brethren beliefs. David stressed that they were a happy family. He loved his wife and Susan loved him back. They had no enemies. None of this made any sense. But Crow couldn't let go of his needling suspicions. He put down his pen and forced David's gaze to match his own. And then he flat out accused David. I think you killed your family. David's temper remained even keeled. His neutral expression didn't alter in the slightest. He simply shook his head and told Crow that he had not committed such a vile act. And he left it at that. No more defense needed in his mind. But to Crow, David's guilt was proven by his calm and steady demeanor. Although he had collapsed on the ground upon first arriving back at his home at 11 p.m., David Hendricks remained steady and controlled throughout the rest of the arduous evening. Crow saw this as a potential psychopathic trait. Before I continue with David's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In addition, the term psychopath is no longer included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a medical diagnosis, but some mental health professionals still use the term to describe personality types. José Jalmita Brites found in a 2016 study that someone with psychopathic traits conducts conversations differently from neurotypical people. Their body language is often geared towards convincing even when under intense police pressure. They don't display any guilty tics or behavior. Their tone remains calm and they generally speak softer than a neurotypical guilty person. Dr. Scott A. Bond noted that psychopaths have an easier time mimicking average behavior. They are likely to hold down steady and successful careers and have families at home. Without a real attachment to empathy or emotion, they easily dissociate from guilt, so it is difficult to draw any sort of confession from such a person after a crime. Over the course of November 8th and 9th, the police found David calm, alert, and prepared, and far too cooperative. 
Suspicious from the start, Detective Crow soon categorized David as a high-functioning psychopath. He believed they needed to move quickly if they were going to prove his guilt. He collected the clothes David wore on November 7th and 8th. He also asked David to sign a consent to search form, which would allow forensic investigators to process the house and crime scene without a warrant. Again, David gave no outward sign of discomfort or fear at this prospect. He handed over his keys and calmly requested that the police keep him updated. But when Crow asked David to take a lie detector test, he showed his first hesitation. He wanted to speak with an attorney first. However, this was a rather expected and natural response, especially after hours of questioning by police that framed him as the murderer of his entire family. Crow decided to focus on collecting whatever evidence they could. If David was a killer, he was a meticulous one, and they worried that any clues might soon be gone. They had to move quickly. Crow first verified the phone records from the Red Roof Inn. They matched David's statement. He wasn't lying, at least about the phone calls. Crow next canvassed the Hendricks Bloomington neighborhood. No one heard anything strange or violent during the night of November 7th. Meanwhile, Detective O'Brien raced to Madison to physically examine the motel room. There could be important evidence waiting for him there if the maid staff hadn't already destroyed it. O'Brien followed the Red Roof Motel operator upstairs and into the room David had occupied during the early hours of November 9th. The officer braced himself for the worst. The unshakable image of the bloodbath back in the Hendricks home was still stained on his mind. He stepped into the dark, dank space. The only light drifted in through half-closed blinds. It seemed lonely, suited for travelers on the road, caught in personal purgatory. It smelled like antiseptic, whether that was due to regular staff cleaning or David's own efforts. O'Brien would never be able to determine. O'Brien proceeded past the bed into the bathroom. He both hoped and feared that he might find something. A misdrop of blood on the tile beneath the sink, a stained garment or cloth that David left behind during his own cleanup, a strand of long hair that he could take back to the forensic team to match against Susan's. O'Brien shut his eyes against the memory of the Bloomington crime scene, and a darker thought came to him. He got down on his hands and knees and scanned with his flashlight. He sought out anything that looked like the small gray flecks that had decorated both Susan and the children's bedroom floors, cracked pieces of skull and brain matter. But O'Brien didn't find a thing. The motel room was clean. On the way back to Bloomington, he stopped at the gas station David told Crow about in his interview and conducted a similar investigation to similar results. Nothing, no evidence at all. Whoever had done this, be it David or someone else, it seemed increasingly possible that they were going 
to get away with it. When we return, we'll follow the forensics team into the bloody crime scene and observe how Bloomington police formed a theory that would truly threaten David and his standing in society. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. Immediately following the discovery of the murders, police had full command of the Hendricks' home from November 10, 1983 onward. A place formerly devoid of modern trappings was now stuffed to the brim with the latest forensic gear. A sanctuary once full of godly worship was now a temple of intellectual science. As the lead technician peered around the children's bedroom, he saw little that wasn't already obvious during officers O'Brien and Hibbins' first walkthrough. As he examined both the axe and knife found in this room, he sighed. Keeping his own fingerprints off the weapons didn't matter. There weren't any other prints to be found on them anyway. There wasn't any blood either. They were both thoroughly cleaned before being ceremonially arranged at the foot of the beds. He gave the command, tear this place apart. Even if the only evidence they found was evidence of a cleanup, there had to be something. But no towels or burnt remnants of any such cleaning cloth were found in the house nor in the garbage. Aside from a leaky faucet, the tub and sink basins in the bathrooms and kitchen were all dry. The technician even ordered an examination inside the pipes themselves, but no trace of blood bone or hair was discovered. All he had to go on was the initial blood spatter present all around the bedrooms. That was all that was left behind by the killer, so it needed to be enough. Then, the technician found an unexpected clue in 30-year-old Susan's bedroom. Before her body was sent away for autopsy, he noted that her blanket had been pulled over her face, partially obscuring it. Based on the blood patterns, it was placed there before the axe came down, as if Susan's killer didn't want to see her face during the act. It was a small detail, but this observation led to a key breakthrough in the case. The investigatory team analyzed the ideology of the killer through a framework developed by legendary FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood. He identified the dichotomy between the organized and disorganized killer. To quote Dr. Scott Bond, writing about Hazelwood's method, organized crimes are premeditated and carefully planned, so little evidence is normally found. The organized killer also has overlaps with Dr. Bond's traits of psychopathy. They usually fit quietly into everyday society. They are above average intelligent, attractive, married, employed, 
educated, skilled, orderly, cunning, and controlled. The positioning of Susan's body and the weapons beneath the children's bed were also framed through another Hazelwood theory. Staging versus posing in crime scenes, a killer stages a scene when they want to mislead investigators. On the other hand, posing is more like a killer's signature. It's a physical manifestation of their psychological disposition, fantasy, or disorder. In the Hendricks case, investigators saw elements of posing, the weapons in the children's bedroom and the sheet over Susan's corpse. They represented David's psychological state. Investigators believed he partially hid Susan's face so he did not have to look at his wife as he killed her, and he left behind the cleansed weapons as a metaphorical offering to his own guilty conscience. The investigators also tied David's potential involvement in the crime to his religious beliefs. A genuinely religious person like David would only do something this horrendous if it still fit within his belief system. Therefore, the new leading theory went like this. David Hendricks killed his family for God. It was a premeditated domestic killing, but the reasoning behind it wasn't the typical disgruntlement with marriage or child rearing. David wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict. He was a highly controlled individual, an organized killer, and eventually, he believed his family had to die in order to maintain some sort of spiritual purity in his life. Therefore, if he was guilty of doing this, he was also guilty of something else that led to this. Police presented this theory and the evidence they'd collected so far to support it to McLean County State's Attorney, Ron Dozier, on November 14th, a week after the murders. But Dozier determined they still didn't have enough to press charges. To build their arrest narrative, they needed to tackle the investigation from two different angles, the physical and the biographical. They needed more physical evidence, that much was certain, but they also needed to build a case against David's seemingly flawless character. When it came to physical evidence, the autopsy reports were key. McLean County Coroner William Anderson concluded that all four members of the Hendricks family died from massive cerebral damage, most likely caused by the axe. While nine-year-old Becky had been killed with a single blow to the head, 30-year-old Susan, seven-year-old Grace, and five-year-old Benji all had multiple wounds ranging from the head to the upper torso. Some of them were stab wounds, seemingly caused by the butcher knife. Out of all the victims, Benji received the most attacks, with 16 total wounds. That said, there were no signs of a struggle or defensive wounds. It was likely that all of the victims experienced near instantaneous immobilization from the attacks, if not instant death. It was probable that the children all died before they could have regained consciousness from sleep. But the rest of the forensic work was fruitless. 
Realizing there was nothing left to glean from the Hendrix home, the police packed up their equipment and vacated the house. It stood empty for the next several months. David moved into an apartment. He couldn't stand to return to the site of the murders. It remained only for the neighbors to gaze at with speculation and dread. It was as much a mystery as David was to the investigation. But then, out of the blue, state attorney Ron Dozier's investigation into David's private life hit paydirt. Dozier received an anonymous tip in late November regarding David's highly successful prosthetics business, in particular, the cash prosthetic. Dozier's source claimed that David met several female models for a cash marketing campaign, and the meetings continued even after the product launch. The source implied that David had behaved inappropriately around these models, asking them to take off their blouses to model the cash brace, even though it was typically worn over clothing. He also asked them to meet out of the office after normal business hours, taking a few of the models on pseudo dates. To Dozier, this was a large crack in David Hendrick's prestigious character. Not only did this kind of behavior threaten his place in the church, it threatened his entire moral standing. It was so opposed to the teaching of Plymouth Brethren that it made Dozier convinced that David was capable of even more sinister behavior, like murder. On December 5th, 1983, police arrested David on the suspicion of murdering Susan, Becky, Grace, and Benji. When he was brought into the police station, David saw seven of the cash models he had photographed waiting in the lobby, preparing to give their own statements to the police. Dozier was playing psychological warfare he wanted to shock David's highly controlled system. After being paraded in handcuffs in front of the models, David was left alone in the interrogation room for five minutes. Then his old friend, Detective Crow, stepped into the room. So, Crow asked, did his story have any changes now? David looked Crow in the eyes, but this time, Instead of repeating his story, he had a new request. He asked for his lawyer, Hal Jennings. David wouldn't say anything further to the police without him. When we return, State Attorney Dozier presents his case against David Hendricks to the jury. And now, the conclusion of the story. As the prosecution against 29-year-old David Hendricks ramped into action in early 1984, they enlisted the FBI to build a psychological profile of the Hendricks family's killer for the upcoming trial. The following is a key excerpt from that statement. The subject desired power and control over the victims. All assaults to the victims were to the facial area, indicating that the subject knew the victims very well. The subject's placing of the axe and knife with the children's bodies contained some ritualism or symbolic meaning to the subject. They were weapons of choice 
as opposed to weapons of opportunity. These murders were well-planned. The subject was very familiar with the layout of the residence. Without saying it explicitly, the FBI determined 29-year-old David Hendricks was the only realistic suspect. It was the logical extension of the psychological profile developed by the police during their investigation. The profile posited that the killer was male as they enacted the most violence upon the only male victim. It also highlighted the idea of a guilty and embattled conscience. In this crime, the killer hated himself most of all, and that was reflected upon the injuries inflicted on Benji. This proposed state of mind ties back into the psychology we discussed in part one regarding religion, patriarchy, and the idea of male self-control. State Attorney Dozier posited that David put up a constant front that guarded his real feelings and shielded a growing disturbance from the outside world. David's connection to the church and their doctrine had so far kept this side of him hidden. He wasn't repressed, he was simply in control. But Dozier said that was an illusion. David Hendricks was a man at war with his own emotion and desire. He kept hiring models to take photos of them and to get close to them. His interactions with these women made him feel like a new man. But they also disturbed him, putting him at odds with his Plymouth Brethren upbringing. His solid sense of identity dissolved. His moral framework was threatened. In response, Dozier believed, Hendricks decided to take desperate action. He had already morally destroyed his family by making them live under sin, his sin. Now, he needed to return them to perfection. He needed to return them to God. David, meanwhile, returned to his personal purgatory as he sat in jail without bond. 1984, passed by like molasses. Susan's mother, Nadine, and the rest of the Palmers stood by David's side the entire time, proclaiming his innocence. The investigation struggled to pull together a full case for the approaching prosecution. Dozier was the only one with the confidence to spearhead his interpretation of David's guilt. This all came to a head in early September, six days before jury selection for David's trial was scheduled to begin. Dozier sat down across from David for a conversation that would be off the official record. This was their first face-to-face -face encounter without anyone else around. David was as calm as he always was, so Dozier didn't waste any time. You're a deeply religious man, aren't you, David? David nodded, a perfect portrait of piety, even in handcuffs. Dozier pressed. I know you were doing things with these models. It kept getting worse and worse. You felt corrupted. And that went against your nature, didn't it? Dozier leaned in, almost empathetic, as he made his accusation clear. So, you killed them. You thought it was the best thing to do. 
you were the head of the family, and it was only a matter of time until your corruption seeped into their lives too. So you sent them to heaven. You got them away from yourself and your own sins. It was a sacrifice, wasn't it, David? It wasn't easy. It wasn't good. But you felt it was your only option. David shook his head. No, no, no. Perhaps David had misbehaved around the models, but it didn't drive him crazy. He would never harm his family. But David confided in Dozier that he was being punished. His family's murder was a punishment from God because he had disrespected the beautiful life he had been given. David reiterated to Dozier, I am deeply and genuinely religious, and the Plymouth Brethren Church declares that all lies are sins. Meaning, even if David had killed his family, he would never keep it a secret. He would repent and pay the price. David's body began to shake, even as he kept his facial expressions under control. Dozier was surprised. It was the most emotion he had ever seen from this man. David almost seemed flustered as he continued his personal defense. Did Dozier really think David could have brought down an axe on his entire family and then clean that entire house by himself? It was ridiculous. Dozier shot back. Was that really more ridiculous than the coincidence of David's entire family getting killed the one night he was out of town on business? The one night he had a perfect alibi? David regained control of himself. He sat back in his chair and closed his eyes. With a weary sigh, he responded, I don't know who killed my family. I really don't have a theory on why or how they did it, but I will tell you this. For me, to work up a scenario on why someone would have wanted to do this, it would be almost as bizarre or screwy as the motive you've come up with. In that same calm tone, David informed Dozier that his legal team would be opening a lawsuit against the police department and state attorney's office once this unjust trial came to an end. The Palmer family was supportive of this. They wanted to take Dozier to task for running an innocent man up the flagpole. This lawsuit would happen unless Dozier dropped the charges now. Now, Dozier was the one to lose his temper. Before he left, David asked Dozier what he was going to do now. Dozier answered, full of newfound uncertainty. David, you're either a hell of a good salesman or you're innocent, and I don't know which. Over the next few days, Dozier tortured himself as he went back and forth over his own theory and David's defense. If the jury found David innocent, Dozier's career might be over. But if David was truly a killer and Dozier let him go free, what blood would he potentially find on his hands? In the end, Dozier maintained his belief in David's guilt, and on October 9, 1984, the trial began. 
Dozier presented David Hendricks as a man caught between two worlds, materialism and spirituality. After years confined within the rules of his church, he had a taste of sin from the women modeling his cash braces, and he wanted more. Yet he also wanted to maintain the godly status that was so integral to his identity. He couldn't divorce Susan without being excommunicated from the Plymouth Brethren, so he drove himself to murder his family and stage it as a burglary. 13 cash models were brought to the witness stand by the prosecution to explain their 1983 photo sessions with David. Model after model talked about his escalating misbehavior. In their initial sessions, he was seemingly respectful, strictly businesslike. But then, David's demeanor changed. He might ask the women to remove their bras so the braces would fit better. One model testified that David asked to see her in the brace wearing only underwear. Another stated that David diagnosed her with scoliosis. He offered to correct it by giving her a massage. When she hesitated to remove her clothes for the treatment, he reminded her that he was a doctor. Then, he massaged her back and fondled her left breast. After multiple sessions, David would always hug the models goodbye, lingering for a few moments too long. Some even mentioned that he went in for a kiss. One model testified that after she rebuffed his advances, David said, since you wouldn't let me up on the mountain, can I at least fantasize? All in all, it was a profile of totally inappropriate behavior on David's part and seemingly displayed a chronological escalation as November 1983 approached on the calendar. The prosecution also brought out evidence that David lost more than 40 pounds over the course of 1983 and changed his wardrobe and hairstyle. They molded this to fit into Dozier's theory that David was becoming a different person and eventually had to destroy his old life. The prosecution also presented evidence regarding the stomach contents of Susan, Becky, Grace, and Benji. While the tests on Susan were not conclusive, it was proven that the children had eaten pizza between one and four hours before their deaths. Dozier argued that the level of active digestion was not consistent with David's timeline of November 8th. If the children ate around 7 p.m., as David claimed, much more of their food should have been digested if they died after he left the house around midnight. Instead, it seemed that the children died between 8.30 and 11.30 p.m., but David's defense team brought in their own experts to refute this. They argued that, based on the children's stomach contents, the time of death could have been as late as 2 a.m., and that timeline matched David's assertions that his family was murdered by a group of men attempting a burglary in the middle of the night. In addition, the defense argued that while the model's testimony about David's behavior may be true, there was a great distance between molestation and murder. Not only had the state failed to prove he actually had an extramarital affair, but 
They also had no other evidence to back up their extensive claims about David's mental health and alleged psychopathic tendencies. The defense brought up the fact that Detective Crow lived near David and conducted his interrogation with immediate bias and prejudice. Ever since that first night, David had come under unfair speculation and it continued all the way into this trial. However, on November 29, 1984, after eight weeks of proceedings, the jury proved that the prosecution had won them over. 30-year-old David Hendricks was convicted on the charges of murdering his entire family. While the prosecution wanted the death penalty, the judge ruled, quote, Based upon the evidence admitted on trial against the defendant, I am not personally convinced that he has been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I cannot, in good conscience, apply the sanction of death unless I have been convinced of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I have not, and mere belief is not enough. Instead, he sentenced David Hendricks to four consecutive life sentences. David was sent to Menard Penitentiary in Illinois. Susan's mother and the rest of the Palmer family still believed he was an innocent man and supported his appeal process. David lived peacefully in prison, causing no disturbances and working for the prison newspaper. He also kept his faith and through a fellow Plymouth Brethren inmate, David started corresponding with Patricia Miller a single mother with two children. As his case worked its way to the Illinois Supreme Court in 1988, David and Patricia got married while he was still imprisoned. Good news arrived in July 1990. The state Supreme Court had reviewed the evidence and decided that the prosecution had acted improperly. They had artificially arranged the chronology of the model's testimonies to illustrate an escalation in David's misbehavior. This heavily influenced the initial jury's opinion of David and his psychology. So, in 1991, David was granted a new trial in McLean County, with the model testimony barred from the proceedings. On March 28, 1991, David Hendricks was judged innocent and released. He and Patricia Miller moved to Ohio and opened a new prosthetics business. Even as normalcy returned to his work life, perfect happiness eluded him on the domestic front. Patricia and David divorced in 1992, and he left the Plymouth Brethren congregation. Ten years later, in 2002, he settled in Florida with 21-year-old Gazelle, a Filipino woman he met over the internet. 46-year-old David knew that Gazelle married him for American citizenship, but they remain married to this day and had two children together. As of today, David Hendricks remains the president of Blue Diamond Orthopedic in Orlando, Florida, once again an average family man. He speaks openly about the 1983 tragedy, investigation, and trial with journalists. Crime writer Steve Vogel covered the entire story exclusively in his book, Reasonable Doubt. He believes David is innocent, 
though admits that no one can know for certain. Perhaps State Attorney Ron Dozier said it best back in 1984. Whatever else might be true of David Hendricks, he's one hell of a salesman. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Jack Bentel. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>